I'll start out upfront that I do not know the true integrations of Japanese cultures and ghosts. The dream I had was a subconscious mind interpretation of a myriad of different influences within my life that resulted in the dream to follow. Historically, dreams in ancient Egypt were considered prophetic visions, visions that are meant to assist in healing, cures for illness, or to help guide a major decision of where to wage war. Ancient Egyptians were so invested in dream interpretation that a book of dreams was discovered in a library for scribe Kenhir Kopasefs. I honestly could be mispronouncing that. This is the same scribe who was in charge of keeping a work journal for the tomb building of the great Ramses. He recorded how deep digging was achieved, the number of wicks used for candlelight during work. We know he oversaw the building on a day-to-day -day basis because of a niche of rock cut above the tomb, and it had the scratched words, sitting place of the scribe. I may be oversimplifying this in my amusement, but he had a day job, very similar to my own, crunching numbers and recording daily operations, and at night wrote about other things that interested him. Although religious or mysterious beliefs intermixing with everyday life was not uncommon during this era, he even made sure to write down differentiating dreams of bad and a good dream in different ink colors. Good dreams were often written in black. The bad were written down in bright red ink. Some of the dream passages he wrote may seem very odd to a modern audience. Dreams like, if you see yourself eating crocodile flesh, this is a good dream. You're acting as an officious leader among your people. The other odd one I found was, if a man sees himself in a mirror, this is bad. It means new life. There are many other examples of history that tie into dream interpretations, and as we explore more episodes of dreams and their outcomes, or worse, cliffhangers, we will see their meanings together. I'm Tasha Wheelhouse, and this is Copper Shock. Warning on this story, while projected as a nightmare and not real, there are subject matters within the story dealing with self-harm and children's deaths. I'll tell this story in the way as though I'd experienced it in real life, mostly because it had a profound impact on me. Sounds weird, right? But so do most nightmares when we tell them out loud. I had applied to go to study abroad in Japan. I was very excited to go. The city I was sent to was more of a mini-city, not a village exactly. It had more industrialized buildings and streets, but the name conveyed an unknown town closer to the countryside in Japan. I remember standing outside of a five-story high building that had a yard with a chain-link fence. The front of the building was cement with long rectangular windows in the front. You couldn't quite see inside. The wall was tinted a brownish-orange color that stood in contrast to the gray sky above it. Ominous is a bit cliché of a word, but what other logic befalls us when describing a nightmare of disjointed scenes from memory? All experiences solely taking place away from the rest of reality. My classes would be taught totally in English, and the classmates I shared were also from America. 
we had a very small pool of about 15 other students with me sitting in this room. I sat down for my first lesson, slumping my backpack to the floor. The professor walked in and greeted us. I remember a few details about him. He was tall and stately, with a slightly round midsection. His hair was longer and peppered with gray occasionally throughout his naturally black hair. He wore simple brown slack pants and a green sport jacket with patches at the elbow. I remember thinking his face was welcoming and warm. Then he gave his initial bow to say hello to the class. He went on to explain that he's earned a doctorate in psychology. He grew up here in this very town and that he'll be teaching us about paranormal experiences and how it affects us mentally. We were taught death done in violence and extreme pain, emotionally or physically, generates energy that echoes through time. It's why ghost hunters lean on audio recordings so heavily or spikes in energy. Our immeasurable souls, when torn in two, can create ripples that echo over time. Despairing emotions inside of a single moment are the only feelings those spirits experience as they repeat the extreme emotional tragedy of themselves again and again. A cyclical hell and cage built by our own pain, and in rare cases, passions. My first class was over. My professor, before excusing us, took a moment and placed his hands behind his back. He looked at me and nodded. I had a confused look on my face because it was really early in the day. I appreciate my class for joining me today. You are excused, I'll see you tomorrow. But before we part, I need to issue a warning. No one is allowed to be in this building at 6 p.m. You are expected to go home. Do not linger. The professor had a weary look on his face, but the classroom all stood up and encouraged me to pack up my bag also. I did so, but slower than the rest. The professor was at the front of the room, wiping down the green chalkboard from all of his notes. As the class walked out ahead of me, I held back and tapped my professor's shoulder. If we cannot stay after six, why are we here? It was an oddly direct question, but in real life, I can be oddly direct as a person. I saw concern flash over his face, but then he nodded and gestured for me to sit down in the front row of empty desks while he sat on the front of his desk folding his arms over his chest. I have a confession. Tell me. This building is not normally a classroom. I'm sure you've noticed, but hallways are roped off, and we were the only congregation of people here today. I didn't think too hard about it, but it was true. Most of the building seemed defunct, and yet there was only one room near the front of the door that was relatively usable, the one we used for the classroom. I nodded to my professor, encouraging him to continue. I'm working on a thesis, and your class is an experiment regarding this building specifically. How? It's simple law of nature that opposites clash, and sometimes they could even balance each other out. I begged the city to allow me to host the class here for a few weeks. 
with the hope that American students wouldn't know the city very well. We wanted to bring in a positive energy of young student learning, make new memories within its walls during the day to counterbalance the bad energy that is projected onto it because of its past. What past? I asked him. My mind's eye shifted away from where I sat with my teacher downstairs. It drifted upward three stories, and the wallpaper changed to look newer. Lights were on in the halls, and I found my mind looking into a single hotel room. A voyeuristic view of someone else's life played out before me. A Japanese woman sat on the edge of her bed, crying hysterically. The sobs and moans that gurgled out from her throat were pained and raw. She had been crying for a long while. I looked over her clothing. They're not modern-day trends, but something suggested of a 1940s retro. Resting in her palm were simple metal scissors. Her arms had sections of her skin cut open, letting it bleed out over her tweed skirt. Not enough to kill herself yet, but enough to let her hurt. I saw intense pain over her face. Then her emotion rippled through my heart. She was punishing herself. But for what? My mind's eye pushed further into the hotel bedroom to see two crumpled bodies of children on the floor behind the bed. Both girls, their necks were purpled, their skin sallow and gray. They had been strangled and dead while their mother cried over them. It was unclear whether she was the one to have done this crime, or if she found her loved ones there and decided it wasn't worth living anymore. My heart was breaking for her. I knew I was looking at a vision. This woman could not see me, and there was nothing I could do for her. My mind's eye brought me back to sitting in the classroom with my professor in modern day. A little time had passed from the time the vision started till now. Who is she? She was Sakura. Her murder of her two children was the final straw that boarded up this building for a number of years until it was retrofitted as an industrial textiles factory. And then, eventually, this school. She did murder them. Why would she do that? It's one of the famous mysteries locally. She had no violent tendencies, and everyone who knew her before was shocked to hear what she'd done. She herself was also found dead the next morning. But you said the murder of her children was the last straw. How many horrible things have happened in this place? My professor sighed. Yes. Unfortunately, this address has had a long history of painful circumstance and death. Each horrible scenario has compounded over time, and this is considered one of the most reviled buildings in the city. If I'm honest, I couldn't even give you a number. There were no real records kept, and some of what I've heard I'm sure is folklore. But you want to counterbalance the building with... with something good. He cut me off and then continued... It's more than just not being here after 6 p.m. People disappear if they stay. They rarely come back, and those that have, have told the wildest of stories. 
no one believes them. Tell me what happens at six. No. My question seemed to alarm the professor. He looked at his watch, and that we had been talking for a long time. Panic hit his face. He packed up everything and insisted that we leave. He refused to speak to me further. It was about 5.20 p.m., and I was once more standing in front of this five-story, cement-faced building. The sun was setting and only highlighted half of the building as shadows from other nearby structures started cutting off the light from it. The professor didn't even wait to say goodbye to me. He had paced away as fast as he could as though he had a small amount of time before disaster. I was about to start walking home myself, but then I heard a group of people around the corner talking, and the breaking of glass. I walked back over to the sound and saw about six of my classmates with heavy backpacks sneaking into the building through the side window. This puzzled me, and appalling curiosity got the better of me as I went to follow them back inside. I approached our regular classroom where I could hear them chatting. I didn't make much effort to hide as I sauntered up to the doorway, leaned on the frame, and asked them, What are you doing? The six of them stopped mid-action. One was pulling up a long dress over a slip. The others were combing over their hair with gel. All of the clothes looked like they were from the 1940s. Why are you dressing like that? They looked at one another deciding if they should let me in on their secret. A tall, attractive brunette girl wearing red lipstick and victory rolls in her hair walked up to me. Here, I made one for you too but they thought you'd be chicken. She held out her hand holding a crafted paper the size of a card. It had my picture and information as though it were a driver's license from the 1940s. I still don't understand. I looked up to my female classmate. She looked back at one of the men in the group who seemed to be the leader. He crossed his arms and asked me, do you know what this place is? It was a hotel a really long time ago. It was a hotel of one of the biggest unknowns in history. Why would Sakura have killed her children? She has no reason to. Pain for spirits is always stronger in darkness. The sun sets at six, and this sort of pain is nowhere near what you or I thought would happen when ghost hunting. His voice quivered with slightly giddy excitement. How do you mean? I asked. Sakura's spiritual pain over the death of her children and her eventual suicide generated energy never seen anywhere else in the world. It's the only reason we're signed up to be here for the foreign student class. The town doesn't talk about what happens after six, and we found out why. I was almost afraid to ask and the light in the room was growing more and more into dusk by the second. What happens after six? If you were inside this building, Sakura's ghost doesn't just appear in the hallways. You are pulled through a rip in time to that night when everything happened. We are dressing as though we belong in her world in 1943 to solve one of the greatest murder mysteries and biggest ghost lures in history. 
I stood there slack-jawed, looking to each of my six classmates. Have you all lost your mind? She'll figure out you don't belong, that you're imposters. Who knows what wrath she'll bring on you if she's strong enough to pull us back in time every night, reliving her pain. I'm out. I dropped my fake 1940s license and began to walk away. But as I turned about-faced, my stomach dropped. I was standing in the room. The room. I don't know where my classmates were. And then it hit me. I don't think they were accounting for the fact that at 6 p.m., the rip in time also meant physical space. It dropped us wherever it liked. I recognized the room from the previous vision I had while talking to the professor. The room was well lit from the sun, almost as if the time of day had reverted to 2 p.m. in 1943. The place was unbelievably messy. Trash scattered and beds disheveled. No one was in this room yet. Sakura and her children were nowhere to be seen. I stood there shocked, trying to think of what I could do. I instinctively started cleaning the room, working to make it lighter, cleaner, and happier. I didn't know if it would make a difference in the slightest, but after I'd cleaned the room, I gave a small, respectful bow to the space, and when I turned away, I was transported once again. I was standing in a new room somewhere else in the building. The light in this room indicated it was certainly now very late at night. I heard an agonized scream from down the hall from me. It must have just happened, whatever happened, to Sakura's children. It was a cry I hoped to never hear again. My heart longed for her, but I knew that warmth and compassion is not something Sakura would be capable of anymore. She had practiced and re-experienced this hell for hundreds of a fortnight, and I knew it. The room I was in, however, had its own set of problems. The wall paint began to wither and peel away as though rotting at an accelerated rate of time. The room I stood in was a very large one with high ceilings. A single paper lantern flickered in the middle of the floor the flame dancing around and casting a warm glow until the flame turned purple. The cold flame gave off a light that bounced over the walls, showing scribbles. The marks were all over from floor to ceiling. My eye drew upward, and ice went through my veins. A teenage girl with a writing tool of some kind was scribbling the invisible ink onto the ceiling while I stared up at her. I made no motion to move. My giveaway was breathing. Clearly this hotel had haunting problems long before the Sakura mystery, and I was going to be experiencing them firsthand tonight. The demonized girl drawing on the ceiling stopped and cocked her ear to the side toward me and my breathing sound. That alone made her realize I did not belong here. She slowly turned her head around a full 180 degrees to face me. Her eyes were a black glaze that wept streaks of dark tears over her cheeks. 
I couldn't read Japanese script, so I had no idea what she was writing on the walls. My guess is that I didn't really want to know. The girl skittered on the balls of her feet and hands over the dead wallpaper down toward me. Her movement was unnatural and animalistic, like a reptile. I stood my ground. I think I knew if the building wanted to put me somewhere else, it would. I felt like I was being tested. The girl lunged at the ground to my left, and I tried not to flinch. She smelled horrible. The smell of fecal matter, and also the smell that meat gives off when it's sat by the kitchen sink for far too long. A strong and pungent, decaying smell. This teenage girl was dead all right, and I don't think she was all spirit just yet. What's odder is that she's not one of Sakura's children. This is someone new. I continued to breathe evenly. When I gave zero reaction to her presence, she lost interest in me and left me alone. I felt a bit astounded. The girl slithered off around the corner, and I took a single step toward the purple paper lantern. My step echoed. I was now standing in a ballroom that used to be in the hotel. It was a smallish ballroom, but the windows around the room were large. The time of day was still night. I felt a coldness crawl across the back of my neck. I turned around expecting to be transported, but the building was not done with me yet. Not in this room. A Japanese man in a long white garb and paled face stood with his arms outstretched. He was older, maybe about 53 or so. His hair was long and placed into a samurai-like bun facing the floor. His long white dress was a single sheet of fabric that draped down from his shoulders to the floor. He glided toward me slowly. As he does, he lifts his head, his eyes meeting mine. Where the whites of his eyes should have been was a deep red, and the corneas were white. It would have been strangely beautiful if it weren't for the fact that the ballroom began to stretch and warp into a thin hallway funneling me toward him. I again decided to show in my heart no fear, that I am not subject to negative energy and refuse to contribute to this building's hunger to pain and dread. I instead offered a respectful bow to the odd spirit and meant it with as much felt kindness in my heart as I could project. This place wasn't about gestures, it was about emotion. The energy exerted in this plane spoke louder when felt from the heart, fear, or humanity. As I bowed to the spirit, the world shifted again. It was light out, and I could hear traffic from outside the windows. I was back. The class would start again in about an hour, so I just decided to stay where I was at and sit at my desk. I was exhausted and placed my hands over my face. My professor walked up to me and asked, Where are your classmates? I turned behind me to see six empty desks. I don't know. I think they did something really stupid. Hmm, maybe. I thought this comment was odd, and I looked up. 
My professor had already turned his back to me and wandered up toward the front of the room. I started to really take in details about the room I was in. The other students didn't look recognizable to me, and I looked at the professor again. He turned on his heel, and his eyes were the giveaway, red outsides with a white cornea. He gave me a malicious grin. I was still here. He made me think I'd escaped. What about them? I gestured behind me to the empty desks. He cocked his head to the side, looking over the desks, then shrugged. That information was least important to him. When they were caught, they gave you up in exchange for themselves. Are they free? I asked. He grinned at me again and bared his teeth. Long canines extruded, not like a vampire, but rather like a fox. I felt the answer from him. They're condemned to this building's warped time loops and circular spirit traps. A roach motel of mortals who ever stepped foot inside it. The man then glided toward me again, trying to strike fear into my heart. The closer he got, the easier it was to stare in those oddly beautiful and disturbing eyes. You will never leave. I heard his words, but I felt myself become calm once more and took a deep breath. Do you know how to feel joy? He was struck aback. He had pointed out my prison, and I pointed out his. A large scream erupted from him, and a sandstorm swept through the classroom. I shut my eyes, covered my face, doing my best not to be afraid. Inside a blink of a moment, it passed. I took one last look. It was nighttime again, and I truly felt it. Everything was over, and I was back. I had passed the building's spiritual gauntlet, and I know I didn't see all of them. I walked out from the building, and gave it one last respectful bow, and left. This is when I woke up. I wrote down the whole dream the morning after. In rewriting it to better fit into a Coppershock episode, I began to notice the influences of my imagination. Stephen King's 1408, Ray Bradbury's Something Wicked This Way Comes, and the Japanese horror film Pulse from 2001. How these influences melded in my mind to produce a new horror story with a beautiful symbiosis between each connection. If you liked this episode, please help us to grow by sharing this episode to your social media, liking the Copper Shock Facebook page, or giving us a review on your podcast app. Every little bit helps to grow our community. And if you have a moment, drop me a line on Facebook Messenger. I love it when you say hello. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you soon.